Christianity, for whatever whatever its faults, it makes space for the confession of suffering. And I think that the Catholic Church can do that in so many ways. And I think that so day as, as a Catholic, I think she might have, I don't know, she might have understood that sharing of suffering is part of what we're here for, even though she was deeply, she was really tight-lipped on what she had suffered. But what survives of what she was willing to confess about her suffering is still very, is still very moving and helpful. And I think as a writer, or I know as a writer, she said that she wrote to communicate. And I think that what has attracted me to this part of her life is the, the confusion and also the very, in the long loneliness, when she writes of it, it's a very, she's got such a control of the confusion. And as a writer, just as an act of writing, it's really admirable. And welcome to Can I Get a Witness, the podcast. This podcast is an audio companion to the book Can I Get a Witness 13 Peacemakers, Community Builders, and Agitators for Faith and Justice. I'm Shay Tuttle. In each episode of this podcast, I'll talk with one of our authors about the person they profiled for the book and about their writing process. Today I'm speaking with Carlene Bauer. Carlene is the author of the memoir Not That Kind of Girl, published by Harper in 2009 and the novel Francis and Bernard, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in 2013. Her work has been published in the Virginia Quarterly Review, N Plus One, the New York Times Book Review, and Elle. For our book, Carlene wrote on Dorothy Day. Well, Carlene, thank you for talking to me. I'm really excited to talk with you about Dorothy Day and about your chapter, and I really appreciate you doing this. Of course. So can you start out, um, for people who might not know Dorothy Day. Could you give just a sort of brief summary of her significance? What's she known for? Why is she in this book? So I would say that, I mean, this may sound glib, but on first, my instinct, my first reaction is to say that she reinvented the Catholic Church in the 20th century before Vatican II (laughs) happened. Um, I think she, I guess you could, I I would want to say that, that she figured out how to give it back to the people who sat in the pews. And that's what I would say her significance is. Um, And she did this by first founding a newspaper called The Catholic Worker in 1933 in New York City. And this was to speak to the issues that were facing working people and the poor at that time. And then shortly thereafter, it became not just a paper, but a house a place for people to live with the poor and work for the poor and uh, also put out the newspaper. That's her significance, I would say, is founding a newspaper and what the movement called Houses of Hospitality, but also um, reinventing the Catholic Church. That's beautiful. Yeah, I love that definition of her. That's really cool. So I think, um, you know, just kind of scanning the list of the people in this book, I think Dorothy Day is probably one of the more recognizable people, or at least, you know, she's been written about right. a lot, even if people don't right. know her story. Um, and one of the things I love about your chapter is that you show us a very different kind of portrait of her, very intimate portrait of her. Um, 
And I think, you know, you take us through some of the experiences that came before the stories that she's probably more known for. So can you um, reflect a little bit on how you found your way into the piece? What sort of brought you to writing it this way? Well, I think, not to pull the curtain back on the great Oz, but I think because (laughs) I think initially that I think the people who were invited to participate in the book were invited to uh, choose three, um, three main turning points in the figure's life. And so in trying to find those moments and reading about day, I, it seemed to me, and I mean, frankly, <laughs> what is the drama, a lot of the drama that happened in her, I mean, a lot of things happened to her after she uh, founded the worker, of course, mm-hmm. but I suppose this is embarrassing. What was more interesting to me was the quest and the questing, the many quests that she went through in order to get to a steady place of being able to look out and see what can I do? I know what it is. Now I know what it is. And then, then the rest of her life, life happens. And so it's always interesting to me as a person, as a thinker, the, the parts in which a person is failing, um, gloriously, gloriously, not miserably failing at the things they think they want and the conflicts that she had within her. And so that's why I was drawn to that part of her life and figuring out the imp- the warring impulses and the choices and the uh, little by little that she learned or the way in which she learned little by little, step by step, that I don't want this, I want that. Yeah, that's great. So, and you have this line early on in your chapter where you say, um, even as a young girl, that Dorothy Day was host to a clash of yearnings, which I love. Um, So what kinds of yearnings do you see in her? Well, I think she wanted, she idealized. I mean, we all do. She had ideals and yet she felt very attracted to very small things. Raymond Carver has a phrase, I think he titles a story, he's a short story, American short story writer who wrote in the 70s, small, small good thing. It's a story that he wrote in the 70s. So I always think about that small, small good thing. She was, she was intensely attracted to those, but yet she also had these incredible (laughs) romantic, idealistic. And when I use those words, I don't use them as pejorative. They were, they fueled, I mean, they're why the Catholic worker existed and exists. She had a huge vision and yet also, um, so the spirit and flesh were, were what she, I think, was confused about. Do I want material success? Do I want literary success? Or do I want to actually be selfless? So that was another conflict. Or do I want to be marry a wife and a mother? Or do I want to live for the world? And so she, she was having trouble reconciling those. Um, and I don't think she ever, I don't think she ever reconciled the flesh and the spirit as much as she sort of decided to maybe just give up on the flesh <laughs> in in a very little romantic way and and then um be selfless for others she had small yearnings and big yearnings and she tried valiantly to reconcile them so you write that that during adolescence days true church might have been reading so i'm wondering when you think about this kind of insatiability that she had around reading what is that um, either reveal about who she maybe already was, or what did that cultivate in her? She talks in The Long Loneliness about things that talked about uh, man at his noblest. I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> or, or humans at their noblest. And 
And she talks about uh, uh, like a Pulp Fiction short story she read about a nurse in the Klondike trying to decide who who to save. And so, and even this story she says was something that taught her about duty. And so I think she was looking for like how to how to um, I feel these things already. I feel I feel that I'm. I mean, she was playing at being a saint at about eight years old when she found <laughs> out from a neighbor girl who was Catholic what saints were. So I think she. She already felt this within her and reading reflected it. And she, she read for, I think she read to be, uh, to find, um, to find other people wanting those things. And I think it also at different points, um, more concretely, uh, cultivated and sharpened that feeling. She talks about in the long loneliness, she talks about reading, uh, books like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. And uh, Eugene Debs and Jack London and people who were writing about what was going on in society and with working class. And she says that these books, well, no, uh, that those books, I think, converted her is the term she uses to the poor, she says. And so she so there are points in which I think she's looking for reflection. And then other times it actually uh, leads to some sort of cultivation and maybe a path out. But it, it depends. I mean, you can't make that stark. Uh, a distinction, but I, I think that there are books that there are books that she read. There are definitely books that she would read later that she would say uh, put her further on the. So, Jack London and Upton Sinclair might have been books that made her want to. And also, how could I forget? There's a, a Russian writer, Peter Peter Kropotkin, who wrote a book called Mutual Aid, and that was very uh, important to her. And so these books got her thinking about what should I give the world. And then other books got her thinking about you know, maybe it's okay for me to be a Catholic. Yeah, so you write about her uh, being baptized in the Episcopal Church as maybe a young adolescent. Does that sound right? Mm-hmm. But then within a few years, she stops going. What do you think at that point turned her away from church for a time? I think the reading she was doing and the reading that she, she credits the reading she was doing about social issues to um, her brother, one of her older brothers had gotten a job on a social or a leftist paper in Chicago where they were living at the time. And through reading that paper, she learned to read certain books and reading those books and looking at Chicago, she would take walks in Chicago and see the conditions that the poor were living in. And she saw how Christians uh, were doing nothing to stop this. And it disillusioned her for a long time. It was what she, what she would say it was the reading and the looking around and thinking this is not right that p- progressive activists were doing way more to help current conditions than, than churches ever seem to. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that has so much resonance with your your first comment about her kind of giving the church back to people that she... Right, right. She had that, she saw that disconnect so young that then her work became about putting those things back together. So you, and in telling her story, you know, you write that she... She goes to college, but she drops out of college. She moves to New York. She becomes a reporter. She's friends with this kind of bohemian crowd. Um, and then after the start of World War I, she became a nurse. And so I want to move toward um, the excerpt about this kind of dark night of the soul that she experiences. But a lot of this comes out of a relationship that she has. So I'm wondering if you can sort of tell about um, tell about this relationship that's significant and leads to some of these dark nights of the soul um, and sort of prep us to hear the excerpt. 
So while she was a nurse in Brooklyn, she met an orderly uh, named Milo uh, Moise or Moise um, at the hospital, and he was uh, an, had been a newspaper reporter, so a, a reporter who took all sorts of odd jobs in the way that writers did back then, and um, <clears throat> and should probably do now. And I say that as someone who is a who seems to write and go to an office job. Anyway, so um, uh-huh. <laughs> he. They fell in love. She fell in love instantly. And uh, this proved to be a really harrowing experience for her because this person, he uh, apparently was a great inspiration to Hemingway when the both of them worked as reporters on the Kansas City Star. And he was well known for being um, a, a woman of sort of a womanizer, mm-hmm. or not sort of a womanizer. And he was would always hold her at arm's length and she wouldn't take no for an answer. <laughs> they ended up living together for a little while. Uh, and tragically, she became pregnant uh, during the relationship. And he arranged for her to have an abortion. Hmm. And she did have an abortion. And I think in her later, much later in the 70s, I think, she told a young woman in a letter that she was very sick from the, the abortion. And I don't think it went very well. And um, she also, before the abortion, I think tried to, she attempted suicide twice because of her despondency over him. And I think that this relationship maybe showed her that she had, maybe her fixation on romance was incredibly unproductive and selfish. And she had been ashamed to, this is, I'm I'm imagining. I mean, I think she said things like this, but I think it really woke her up to the uselessness of it and the, mm. how it led nowhere. And you would only get, so you would only get to the bottom of yourself, which was not a very helpful uh, place to be. And, um, and I think looking at herself and at the people around her that she had seen suicides. And I think also, she also suspected that free love was really a, a lot of malarkey. And I think mm. that um, a lot of this was sort of, coming to a head uh, after this this relationship with this man. And also she desperately wanted to be a mother mm. and he didn't want that. And so I think it was a situation in which she gave up something she held dear. She sacrificed something she held dear, uh, not only to him, I think, but also she she might say to, to the ideals of her, her progressive generation. So yeah, I'd love to hear that, the excerpt. Um, It was the summer of 1922, and she was 24. One day, while reading one of the Chicago papers, she found out that a friend of hers, in a moment of despondency, had taken bichloride of mercury and was in the city hospital. In From Union Square to Rome, Day writes that this woman was, quote, unhappily in love with a newspaper man, quote, but does not mention what she will confess years later in The Long Loneliness, that she and this woman were both unhappily in love with the same man, Lionel Moisey, who goes unnamed in Day's account. Both were poisoned by the same unhealthy attachment. But if they were both in love with the same man, jealousy did not keep Day from rushing to this woman's side when help was needed. After being released from the hospital, the friends, still unwell, headed to a house maintained by the industrial workers of the world. Later that night, Day brought her food and some clothes, and she paid for her selflessness. During a raid on the house, the two of them were arrested on suspicion of being prostitutes. Because the house was run by suspected communists, it had become a target of the Palmer Red Raids, which Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer was using to prevent a Bolshevik revolution on American soil. 
Say and her friends spent a handful of days in jail. It was Day's second time. A few years before, in 1917, she was arrested alongside other women picketing for the vote outside the White House. But this time was different, Day wrote in The Long Loneliness, because she was suffering shame at her own recklessness. Quote, I was a victim, yes, of the red hysteria at the time, but I was also a victim of my own carelessness of convention, unquote. She continues, it was as ugly an experience as I ever wished to pass through and a useful one. I do not think that ever again, no matter of what I am accused, can I suffer more, I did then, of shame and regret and self-contempt. Not only because I had been caught, found out, branded, publicly humiliated, but because of my own consciousness that I deserved it. Her suffering might have come from reasons other than, that, other than this arrest. The shame, regret, and self-contempt she felt in the wake of the love affair that led her to abortion and attempted suicide. Her romance with Moise may have been in accordance with Greenwich Village mores, but it did not conform to the deepest desires of her heart. Thank you. So I think this image of Day in jail during this really painful time in her life, you know, th- this isn't what I think of when I think of her. Um but it feels important. Why do you think it's important for people to know this part of her story? So I am a big fan of a British writer who's also a psychoanalyst named Adam Phillips. And he was reading an essay that he has written on the British 18th century uh, writer, Samuel Johnson and Freud. And Adam Phillips talks about both Johnson and Freud as being writers working on a realistic account of human suffering. And I think that reading this about day, it, it made, I think it's knowing about the failures or heroes don't come to us having always been um, a colossus. And I think that that's one of the gifts that, um, we may receive from people who we want to believe and are greater than us. I do think she was greater than us, even though she was incredibly flawed, like all of us are. There's also something that Julia Kristeva said this before, but I think in a book called This Incredible Need to Believe, she talks about how Christianity has given the Western tradition a legitimization and poetization of suffering. I've, I've incredibly reduced her thought. And I do, so what she's saying is that Christianity, for whatever it's, whatever its faults, it makes space for the confession of suffering. And I think that the Catholic Church can do that in so many ways. And I think that so day as, as a Catholic, I think she might have understood that sharing of suffering is part of what we're here for, even though she was deeply, she was really tight-lipped on what she had suffered. Mm. But what survives of what she was willing to confess about her suffering is still very is still very moving and helpful. And I think as a writer, or I know as a writer, she said that she wrote to communicate. What has attracted me to this part of her life is the the confusion and also the very in the long loneliness when she writes of it it's a very she's got such a control of the confusion and as a writer just as an act of writing it's really admirable Hmm. so as day is coming out of this part of her life the part connected to moisey she seeks solitude she builds this tiny or buys this tiny house on a beach in staten island (laughs) but you you have this really Lovely. Oh, there's so much lovely in your chapter. But you have this lovely part. It says, on Staten Island, her conflict between flesh and spirit saw an abatement. 
She was no longer marching, protesting, or reporting. She was no longer staying out until the sun rose. Instead, most nights she took to bed with a book, the wind howling around her. And it goes on in its more loveliness. But when I read this part, this is also a kind of delightful surprise of your chapter, not specifically about day necessarily, but I think in the context of what we tend to think of as kind of an activist life, right? To think that she had this season of real solitude and quiet. Um, So in what way do you think solitude was a part of Day's kind of witness and work in the world? She had a very conflicted relationship to solitude when she wasn't extremely convicted that she needed it. (laughs) She, Mm. there were times when she was leading the Catholic worker that she would go on retreat and she would say that she needed to get away and think and read. And then the Catholic worker, I think, had the two or three or it depended on the time. There was always a always an effort on the part of the worker or maybe Dorothy Day uh, to get a farm working. Um, they felt it would be good to have a place where people could work on the land and go and have a retreat to get out of the city. And those farms never worked. And they were often, and, and Dorothy Day's granddaughter uh, published a book about a year or so ago, a biography of, of Day that's really good. And she talks about more than other accounts, just how those farms never worked. So there was always a level of chaos at the farms that mm, never quite seemed to be as tragic as, as there were in the houses in the city. I think she needed it, but also interrogated her need for it and, and maybe um, sought sociability just as much. She she is a kind of contemplative. I mean, she, she pulled off a really great t- trick of being a contemplative while also being, um, to use a phrase I used a couple of minutes ago, in the thick of it, which is, I guess, like Teresa of Avila, who she revered. Um, and like Teresa of Avila, she founded a house and traveled and taught. And um, Teresa of Avila got on a horse, I think, and Dorothy Day got on a Greyhound bus, um, or Peter Pan bus, <laughs> what I feel like anyway. So I think, she, I think she needed it and then didn't need it anymore. You, you write about Day's sense of the sacramentality of things. Can you talk about that a little bit? What do you mean by that? And what kinds of things were sacramental to her? I think that phrase came from an artist that was close to the Catholic worker community named Fritz Eichenberg, who did famous woodcuts that if you, they're, they're in the long loneliness, but I think he also um, did woodcuts for the paper, the Catholic worker. And I think mm-hmm. he, he might be responsible for that phrase. And so if the idea, if the idea of the sacramental, according to the church, Catholic church is that um, there there are signs of grace in the world, there are visible signs of invisible grace, then many things of this earth aren't, can, can show them. So if marriage is a sacrament that shows us Christ's love for the church, I think that's maybe how that could be, one way that could be interpreted. So that's one way that the earthly can show us the heavenly. Even the simple act of making curtains um, could be a way of showing care and love and you could find um, in like having a meal, even if it wasn't communion, uh, could be a sign of uh, Christ's love for, or, you know, Christ loves people. Uh, or that um, love for another 
anything that maybe showed that there was another way to see the world could be, I'm assuming very broadly, could be sacramental. So um, mm-hmm. it, a book could be sacramental in showing you that I, she, this is, I am not quoting her, but I, I think her sort of lens would, was very broad that you could, um, anything that provoked hope and um, love of others maybe could be seen as sacramental or just introduces beauty, which is grace into the world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, and and the feeling that I get toward the end of your chapter as you're talking about this sacramentality and um, what it made me think about, and you have to tell me if I'm reading this, like, if this makes sense with your understanding of Dorothy Day, but that if if things could be sacramental, then that in some way kind of satisfies this conflict of flesh and spirit because then a thing is both its flesh and its spirit if it's sacramental and I just I think that's fascinating that you you know you see in her this conflict in that and then where your peace moves and it seems that where her life moved was to to take these things that are you know quote-unquote flesh (laughs) or things and to see what's spirit in them does that sound right that sounds right I think that the the more she the longer she lived, I think the better able she was to hold those two opposing or sometimes not so opposing things in mind and understand that they were not they didn't always have to be at war. That in itself feels hopeful. The idea that yeah. <laughs> that you know, if that were her only witness to the world, that feels like a gift. I think that's why I was attracted to her when I was younger, because I saw in the long loneliness, I, we were assigned it in an introduction to theology course that I was taking at the college I was going to, and I'd never heard of her. And, but I saw in this woman, someone who had clearly lived in the world and turned from it, but didn't turn from it in a way that was a rejection. It was trying to to turn from it in order to love it. That was what I was attracted to in Dorothy Day when I was young. And that remains one of the reasons why I, I remain compelled by her because she faced the world and um, the world, and I think the world responded. I mean, there were many people who were not Christians who, who were attracted. I mean, when I say attracted, I, I should say compelled, who were compelled and admiring of Day. She had her, her antipathies and, and, Laws, which we won't go into here, which, but um, I think that people largely recognize that this was a woman who whose Christianity was an open door, and that's why she went into the Catholic Church because she <laughs> she saw it as an open door, and I think that's why I was attracted to the Catholic Church. I converted because I didn't have anything better to do when I was um, in New York City, and I think that um, <laughs> uh, that's too glib, but. Um, but I think that what I saw in the church, there there are portions of the church, Catholic church, that do have a more uh, overt um, language with which to speak about what Day and her progressive compatriots called the masses. And I think that that she, it's sort of like a good, <laughs> in a good artist, she sort of took something and ran with it. <laughs> she saw something that people weren't seeing and sort of blew it up wide. And I think that that's, that's, that's why I go on persisting in thinking that the Catholic Church may offer something for people because she, she saw it too.
and she saw it, knew its faults and converted despite it. I have been a little bit anxious in not writing about what I wrote about, but in highlighting those details because she um, she didn't speak of them. I mean, so, and I don't, she was ashamed of them. She didn't want other people thinking that they could sin too and then, you know, scurry back into the arms of the church. And she, particularly young people, and I think she was just horrified at what she herself had done. And I think that um, it was something that she she didn't, she only really started to, talk about a little more openly the older she got. I think it can be so hard, especially with, you know, a book like this that's full of these kinds of, you know, we're writing about them because they're some kind of a hero or another. And so it can be really hard to humanize them. But I think that's, it's so important because if they're not human, then we have an excuse not to try to be challenged by their stories, you know. That's great. Yeah. I think it's a gift, really, to be able to do that. Also, she did say, there was something we were talking about a, a minute ago. She she did say, I think more than once, like, not everyone has to do what we're doing, meaning the Catholic worker. And I think about that a lot. So it's not that mm-hmm. Dorothy Day has let me off the hook. <laughs> but, um, right, right. but I do feel like that also is someone who was an activist to say, no, not everyone has to live in a house in the East Village where there are um, people come homeless people coming in every day and eating eating meals and you know being behaving in, in challenging ways like not everyone has to live in St. Joseph's house in the East Village I mean I, I'm, I'm putting a place name on it but not everyone has to do this and she appreciated people doing other things and I think that that um, and as, as much as I read of her letters and diaries and people say about her, like, I don't think that, I think she meant that. Like, that wasn't just something she, and I think that, that sort of, that spiritual wisdom, like, not everyone's spiritual wisdom has to look like my spiritual wisdom. I mean, not that she would say she was wise, but, and I, I find that profoundly um, helpful and uh mm-hmm. What's the word I, that's a witness too, I guess. I hope I used that word correctly. Like that. Yeah, yeah. All, you know, it's a very simple, it's, I mean, in a way you could say like, everybody's got their own talent. <laughs> but I think that we can tend to think that we have to be one way. And, right. Or maybe I do. And that's not everybody else's problem. But I do think we can be susceptible to figuring, what's the one way? Because it's hard to bear conflict and inner conflict, which I guess is what she knew all about. But um, yeah, it's so hard to let someone be different from you and let that be okay. You know, like that that doesn't mean that you're wrong. You know, right, <laughs> I think right, I think right. it's really hard. Right, and yeah. especially in a in a system like and religion tends to, um, for understandable and various reasons, invite that. Uh, tendency to prescribe um, and proscribe, pre and proscribe. How do you think Dorothy Day is a witness that we need today? Well, because um, very sadly, I think it's many of the the conflicts um, and the political movements and the struggles that were going on when she was a young woman in her late teens and into her 20s and the late and the mid mid 1900s early 20th century i mean early 20s um the, the deep fear of immigrants there was an immigrant 
Quota Act, I think, passed, I think, when she was a young woman and she was becoming awakened to these radical causes that we are doing. I mean, that's, we we're doing that. Their um, great upheaval and sexual uh, presentation, self-presentation, identification, that was happening then. So great up, there's so many great upheavals in um, what people wanted America to be and what people wanted people to be that I find are similar now, like weirdly similar. The things she was concerned about and what she fought for are things that we're having to be, I mean, we should always be concerned about them, but they're coming to crisis points in a way that they were in her time. Yeah. And I think that it's it, like how, like monopolies. How do we treat working people? What do we owe working people? And that also, too, she believed a lot in the dignity of work. And I think that that is something we really need to get a handle on. Like, how will we ever get a handle on that? We don't know how to think about work, not just as Christians. I mean, just as, as, an, as Americans, we don't know how to treat it with dignity. And I think she thought about that a lot. The broad concerns, movements, and struggles are, are you can find um, nearly instant parallels. Carlene, thank you so much. It's been so, so great to talk to you, and I really appreciate you doing this. So. Hey, thank you. This is the most real conversation, paradoxically, even though it's been about really the unseen essentially um, this has been the most real conversation i've had in a long time and i'm deeply grateful can i get a witness the podcast is a production of the project on lived theology at the university of virginia a research initiative whose mission is to study the social consequences of theological ideas for the sake of a more just and compassionate world to learn more about lived theology visit livedtheology.org or find us on social media This podcast is produced, edited, and engineered by Jessica Seibert, and written, edited, and hosted by me, Shay Tuttle. Original music is by Drew Wilson. Special thanks to Project Director Charles Marsh. The book, Can I Get a Witness? 13 Peacemakers, Community Builders, and Agitators for Faith and Justice is edited by Charles Marsh, Shay Tuttle, and Daniel P. Rhodes. It's published by Erdman's Publishing Company and is available in all your favorite formats from all your favorite booksellers. Thank you for listening to Can I Get a Witness, the podcast.